0: Today on Pilgrim Radio's His People, Samuel James, on how the influence of the internet permeates our lives and society.
1: When you listen to engineers who design the algorithms to Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, things like that, they will acknowledge that the algorithm is set up to reward content that elicits anger, because anger is the number one most productive emotion for getting people to stay on a platform. Samuel James,
0: next. Samuel James says the Internet is the single most immersive cultural force in the lives of most modern people. It makes it possible to conduct many aspects of modern life without ever leaving our homes. He says whether we like it or not, the Internet has completely transformed how we experience life. This idea is behind his very insightful new book, Digital Liturgies, rediscovering Christian wisdom in an online age. Samuel James is Acquisitions Editor for Crossway Books. Samuel, was there a proverbial aha moment which led you to write about the comprehensive effect of digital technologies on our lives?
1: Yeah, I think there was a couple, actually. So around 2016, 2017, and kind of the political uh, chaos that was happening, for lack of a better word, um, I started paying close attention, maybe for the first time ever, to the way in which I saw in myself and I saw in people that I knew um, kind of things that I'd never seen before, like ways of talking, ways of thinking. And as I kind of interrogated that, it seemed to me that the only thing that was kind of facilitating these changes Yes, things were polarizing. Yes, there were emotions high on, on kind of both sides of the aisle. But what seemed to be the case was that the uh, we, we, were, we were thinking and we were communicating in a very kind of like Twitter way. So, we were just talking to each other in kind of short bursts of really emotional reactive thinking. And so, I I, I hadn't really put kind of like a spiritual category on that until… Uh, summer of 2020, I finished uh, Nicholas Carr's book, The Shallows, What the Internet is Doing to Our Brains. Mm. It was published in 2010. It was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. Uh, and one of the things Carr establishes in that book is that the internet actually has like a cognitive, psychological effect on us as viewers. So like we read and think differently online than people who read and think analogically with paper and print products, that kind of thing. And there's an entire kind of reason for that between cognitive science and the science of computing to explain those effects on, on us. And so, as I finished Nicholas Carr's book, I asked myself, what are the theological implications of that? What are the implications for our spiritual lives if this technology that we're all using to communicate, to read, to learn, um, and we're all using for good things in many cases, but what are the implications for us spiritually if this technology actually has in its very shape a uh, an effect on the kind of people that we are, the ways we think and communicate with each other? So, uh, the book was born out of a desire to kind of have scripture and the work of Nicholas Carr talk to each other and to kind of see if there was a coherent uh, theological, but also um, kind of philosophical uh, case to be made for the internet as the source of personal formation.
0: Mm, okay, that's really interesting. And you, uh, early on in your book, you talk about uh, I think it was a, might have been a commencement address or something like that, where there is the commonly. Uh, used metaphor of the fish in water, and the one fish uh, you know, asks the other one, "Well, how's the water?" And it asks, "Well, what, what, what's water?" Can you talk right. about th- that and what it has to do with with this?
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that that's such a fun story, and the the commencement address that I, I mentioned is David Foster Wallace's address uh, at Kenyon College, which has become a famous one. You can read the transcript. I think there's perhaps even audio online that you mm, can mm-hmm. see. It's kind of become a famous commencement address. And he uses that story of the fish in the water to illustrate that the things that often are most kind of fundamental to uh, how we're thinking and how we're living are things that we can't even really detect. So it's the things that we take most for granted that tend to have the most power. Um, So in the case of the internet, uh, as I was kind of thinking about the ideas in the book and, and wondering how I was going to articulate what I wanted to say, I realized that one of the difficulties for us as modern people is that the social internet in particular has become so ingrained into every kind of experience of life. Like we're just not used to, um, at this point, we, it's hard to even remember for many people what life was like before, uh, Facebook or Instagram or Spotify or things of that nature. Mm-hmm. It's hard to even remember what life was like before those things. Those technologies have kind of become the, the way that the world is mediated to us. And so, uh, that means that this technology enjoys an enormous amount of influence over us precisely because we're often not stepping outside of it long enough to think okay what what could this be doing to me what could what kind of affects what kind of thoughts am i thinking because of this technology we just take it for granted and so i think that's why the the fish in the water metaphor resonates we're we're all fish the water is kind of this this digital ecosystem and it's often hard to step back and say well what actually is in the
0: water. I think you use the terms, it's sort of omnipresent and immersive. And um, which is of course water, uh, when fish are in the water. You also, uh, you talk about, just to kind of give those of us that have been around for a little while too, remembering before the internet, after the internet. And it's interesting too, that you point out in your book that not absolutely everybody is on the internet, but of course the vast majority of people are. And it's gone from uh, essentially a hobby the hobby of a few people to a routine of the many. And it's and, like you say, it's sort of kind of gone undetected, but that has big uh, implications for individuals, but it, but then as society, if it's become so so broadly accepted.
1: absolutely. I, I like the way some kind of media critics have phrased it. Um, you know we describe something as opt-in if your default is that you're not using or you're not belonging to something and if you just des- if you decide you want to use it or belong to it you have to take proactive steps in order to do that So the image of the internet as opt-in was when we were all uh, using the internet with cables connected to our personal computers that had to stay in certain rooms in the house, right? So we had to connect it to our phone line. The internet, in a sense, stayed there in terms of our experience Mm -hmm. of it. And if we wanted to get online, we had to go to that room, get on that computer, do it. And then when we stepped away, we were offline, well, the internet has actually now become opt out, which means in order to not be influenced by, on, by online culture, in order to not be immersed in it, you actually have to take positive steps to avoid it because the default, because of the smartphone, because of the ambient internet technology, and because of the way many employers and many uh, pop culture institutions are kind of changing the way they do business, uh, the default is now... Well, of course you're online. Of course you have access to all this technology. Of course you're constantly looking at your phone, um, and so that is a radical worldview shift. It's a mentality shift away from, hey, you know, I'm my existence is actually this embodied existence where I live in this house on this street with these people, and you know, I get online to do something, but then I step away and I kind of mm-hmm. join the real world. Uh, the experience is now actually the internet is kind of this. Um, parallel identity. I can do all of my learning, my communicating, even worshiping online. Uh, so I think that's a pretty radical shift, and people are are sensing that shift in in their culture and among people that they know, even if they can't really articulate what that is.
0: Well, well, the book we're talking about is Digital Liturgies, and we want to get to what that is in just a moment, Rediscovering Christian Wisdom in an Online Age. And just to kind of uh, one uh, quick follow-up to what you just said, Samuel, Samuel James is my guest. He's the author of the book. You were beginning to uh, explain that the Internet brings a particular ideology, value system, and worldview. To our lives, and for some, that might be thinking, no, I, I I just use it to check my email and to text people, and occasionally to check my newsfeed. It's it's not doing any of that, but uh, it but it actually brings a, a worldview that is, you say, if we're not careful, it, it pushes very strongly against a biblical world, worldview.
1: Yes, that's right, and and it's it's totally understandable why many of us think. Well, the Internet's just a tool, right? It's like a screwdriver. I can use a screwdriver Mm -hmm. to do something bad, but it ultimately depends on what I want to use it for. And I understand that mentality, but actually the Internet is quite different. Uh, And Nicholas Carr in his book, The Shallows, he he uses the language of, uh, of information technology. So information technology, language-based technology is different than like a wheel or a screwdriver because information uh, actually changes the w- the words that we use and the way we think. So the way we think is connected to what we call things. And um, this has a, a powerful effect on how we perceive each other, how we perceive the world. And so the internet essentially is a space where we go to escape the confines of our of our self, of our body, of our uh, of our home, uh, the way I've described it in the past is um, when when a person gets online, they can control everything some, someone sees about them, right? So I can control my profile picture. That's how you view me. I can control what you know about me through what I post. I, me, and the content I produce are kind of synonymous in a way that that's not true off the computer when when you and I are in the same room getting to know each other or becoming more acquainted with each other um, there's a sense in which we can't really hide from each other that way we can't hide our appearance we can't hide our body language there we present as whole people embodied mm-hmm. people that's the way God intended for us to relate to one another because God created us with bodies uh, and we will have bodies um, when Christ returns and raises us uh from the dead and and so our fate is embodied and so what does it mean for our understanding of ourselves and our understanding of reality that we have this technology that actually enables us to escape all of that and we can kind of become pure uh, rationality, for lack of a better term. So, So I think that is the major way that the internet affects us, even if we're not conscious of it. It's not all about content. It's not all about, well, I avoid bad content on the internet, so there's no problem. It's also about form. There's a form to the internet and a shape and a logic to its very existence that actually suggests to us things uh, that may not be um, biblical and may not be the way the Lord wants us to view ourselves and each other.
0: And I think the word that you use or the phrase is expressive individualism, that it, it yes. kind of in a way is shaping us to see everything is all about me, I, um, information yeah. that I need, etc.
1: Yeah, so expressive individualism. This, uh, the, you know, it's worldview of every Disney movie, right? Follow your heart. Yeah. Uh, it, it, just to kind of realize your own desires. Um, well, the internet is a extremely powerful technological vehicle for expressive individualism because when I when I log on, I am I am just me, and so I I can uh, actualize any of my desires. I can express myself however I want to. I am literally disconnected. From the things that that pull on me, the things that bring me out of myself, my relationships, my commitments, uh, my memberships, things like that. Uh, and so when I when I experience life online, it's just me. It's just the user, the view from the user screen. Um, so so yeah, expressive individualism. You know, if, if we think about digital technology as being the water, expressive individualism is is like the chlorine in mm. the water. Like it once it gets in there, it just saturates the water, and there's no experiencing the water without experiencing the chlorine.
0: Well, the title of your book is Digital Liturgies, and I'm wondering if you can define that for us, Samuel, and then your book, of course, goes through, uh, you write about five digital liturgies, and I'd like to ask you about each of those, but first of all, just by way of a definition, what is it?
1: Yeah, so uh, in the book I define a liturgy, which some people may be familiar with from church. So a church's liturgy um, is is kind of their order of worship, and a, a liturgy I think is is understood well as kind of a set of practices. So a, a church will have a, uh, a you know a call to worship, a reading of scripture, a corporate prayer, singing, preaching, that sort of thing. So the liturgy is actually a set of practices, and all of these practices have one goal: that's to make, uh, in the church's case, and make make the gospel more plausible to your your heart. So so that when you're experiencing the liturgy, the the words of Jesus and the promises of the gospel feel real and true to you. Well, in the book, I say that expressive individualism in particular, because it's permeated the internet, it actually creates these five digital liturgies of the internet itself. And so, um, when we're Thinking about the internet as kind of this habitat that we enter that shapes us. It's really as if the internet is like a church that we're all attending every day. And the internet commends these certain ways of thinking, behaving, and feeling that drive down these worldviews deeper into our heart every day. And that's why um, that's why I'm using the language of church. I'm using the language of religion to describe the internet because there are these sets of practices. And you know, we're gonna talk about them in just a second, but there's there's these sets of mentality mentalities and attitudes and habits that the internet commends to us that makes its worldview feel more plausible to us.
0: Mm, Well, I appreciate that explanation. Well, the first one of these five digital liturgies, and as we talk about these, I think what you're saying will immediately become clear to people that are familiar with the internet. But the first one is authenticity.
1: Yes. So, so the chapter is kind of subtitled, uh, My Story, My Truth, right? Uh, And that's going to be a familiar sentiment to anyone who has (laughs) watched TV for more than uh, five minutes, right? Uh, If if you've watched movies, if you listen to music for more than five minutes, the idea of telling my truth. Um, And the point in that chapter is that the internet as a habitat that is completely divorced from kind of embodied reality creates this social currency where your expertise and your your research and your credentials get measured against my personal story. And so for you to say to make a truth claim on my life to say hey this is this is true absolutely and you should respond to it, I could simply say well that doesn't fit my personal experience. Mm-hmm. And in the in the eyes of the social internet, um that's who wins. I win because I have the personal story.
0: And in terms of that that term that you just used a phrase social internet I don't know if I've heard that before are you coining a term or is that something that is becoming uh commonly used to have those two together
1: no I have a friend uh, Chris Martin who's done work also in this field um, he has a book called the wolf in their pockets talking about social media and the life of the church he was the first person I ever heard use the term social internet uh, but I think that's a really helpful way to distinguish hey I don't know what he's talking about I'm just on uh you know I'm just on uh, Wikipedia trying to find out right. like when this particular car was invented yeah. or something like that um, there is a difference between the way we use the internet to kind of talk to and reach out to one another and just the inf- internet of facts. And so that's kind of one way of drawing that distinction.
0: Well, the second of these five digital liturgies, again, as as you explain these, I think light bulbs are going to come on for a lot of people is outrage. Hmm. Uh, talk about how that is a digital liturgy and the, well, Maybe it's too obvious to even ask, but its (laughs) effect on us.
1: (laughs) Right. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, all you have to do is open your social media apps, and you can you're just smacked in the face with this one. Uh, So, the digital liturgy of outrage. What it does is it trains us to think. Uh, reactively. So we're not, we're not thinking carefully. And Nicholas Carr is very helpful here in his book, The Shallows, because he presents very compelling evidence that cognitively, we cannot think as carefully about stuff that we experience online as we can a book or an article that we're just sitting with. So there's, there's actually a cognitive gap a cognitive quality gap between what's online and what's in print. And so what we when we log in and we see people like a fight breaking out in a comment section and we go that person didn't even read the article or they're not even responding and they're just getting madder and madder and that is actually part of the nature of the internet. It's mm. th- it's having that effect on the way we think and Bill, one of the the more striking things in the book and and you can find this other places too is when you listen to engineers who design the algorithms to Facebook to Instagram things like that they will a- acknowledge that the algorithm is set up to reward Content that elicits anger, because anger is the number one most productive emotion for getting people to stay on a platform. Um, so it's it's endemic to the internet, and it's it's very, very fitting as a as a shaper of our of our spirits as a digital liturgy.
0: The next one is shame, and of course, we think of the whole canceling culture.
1: In terms of maybe a generation coming a coming of age that has primarily experienced the world through the internet, well. How do you how do you respond to things that you don't like on your computer? You exit out, you mute it, you cancel it. Mm-hmm. And so this type of practice day in and day out, Teaches us, I believe, that this is what the world should be like. If I don't like what you're saying, I should be able to just click a button and you go away. I should be able to block you. I should be able to mute you. And so I think what's happening is we're bringing that experience of the world that we've um, kind of imbibed through the internet and we're applying it to every sphere of life now. And that's why people don't understand why are you saying this speaker has a right to say this if it offends me? No, I think it should go away because we're just not used to the idea of. The world is not all about us. We're not, we don't have infinite power over what we're experiencing. So I think that's one way in which the internet actually trains us to to go after people to to form like a little online mobs and try to try to ruin people's livelihoods just because they said something we don't like. It's this constant desire to kind of purify. Our, our little view from our monitor, so to speak. Uh, so I think that's another way that the internet really shapes us for the worse.
0: And, and interestingly enough, that as it's shaping us to accept this kind of value system, if it comes from an authority figure and, and is pointing to a particular kind of, say, content worldview perspective that many people don't like, we just simply need to uh, shut that down and, right. and uh, close it off, and of course we forget about. Oh, wait a minute! There's a there's a First Amendment. And there's freedom of speech. This right. this can push against that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, freedom of speech doesn't make any sense if your experience of the world is one in which you have total power over what you see. Freedom of speech only makes sense if you accept the objective existence of a world which may present you with things you don't like. And if you think that that's normal, if you think that that's normal, freedom of speech makes sense. If you don't think that that is normal to you, then it doesn't make any sense at all. And I think that's what we're seeing. I think where we're seeing internet-shaped minds react violently against the idea of free speech because it just doesn't make sense with the way that they have encountered the world.
0: Well, we're talking about the book Digital Liturgies, Rediscovering Christian Wisdom in an Online Age with uh, the author, uh, Mr. Samuel James. We're talking about five digital liturgies that he writes about. He's talked so far about authenticity, outrage, shame. A couple more, uh, consumption. And again, if we think about it in terms of the internet, it almost seems very clear. But uh, how is that a digital liturgy?
1: It's no surprise to people that there's a lot of inappropriate content on the internet, right? So there's a lot of content mm-hmm. that is obscene, vulgar, uh, not not fit for anyone's consumption, but especially not for a Christian. Um, and but the question is, is there something about the internet that actually has a logic to that? Like, is there something about the internet that makes that type of content? fit the the medium of the internet better than most other mediums and i think there is i think the internet you know in the case of pornography what pornography essentially is is taking something that's meant to be experienced between a man and a woman and turning it into a consumable experience for a third party i'm going to take this very intimate this this very uh, life-giving Thing that the Lord has given us, and I'm going to turn it basically into a snack food that I can consume and then discard. Mm-hmm. Well, that's actually the logic of most of the internet, right? So there, there are uh, videos and pictures that you can watch of people pretending to be your friend. Um, I talk about this in the book, like reaction videos. You get to watch people react to a movie or something that they're seeing. Mm-hmm. And it's, the reason it's fun, the reason it's peeling is because when you go out with friends to watch a movie or something, you're not just watching the movie. You're watching them watch the movie. <laughs> that's part of the friendship. What we're seeing in this particular genre of video is we're seeing friendship simulated mm. for people who don't have friends. Um, and so that is an example of how the logic of the Internet takes something that's so precious and so valuable like friends friendship and says well well we can't really we don't know how to arrive at the genuine thing so let's turn this into kind of something that we can consume and kind of get the sensation of it and that sounds a lot like pornography to me as well
0: mm-hmm. And finally the fifth of these five digital liturgies that you write about is meaninglessness and how is the uh, internet a fertile environment for that?
1: Yeah, I, I think this is the one that will resonate with a lot of people, even if they've, uh, you know, maybe kind of feel like the other four uh, have kind of missed them somehow. Which more power to you if that's true. Uh, but I think this is the one that we all kind of feel. It's there's just so much distraction online. We feel constantly pulled by new content, and in the chapter I talk about how the internet kind of dislocates us and makes us discontent. Um, so, we we kind of, our attention gets pulled away from the people and the things that we are uh, truly tied to, like our families and our, our churches and our communities. Our our, internet, our attention gets pulled away from that and toward faraway things, like faraway arguments between uh, people we don't even know about stuff we haven't even read about. Uh, so, our attention get, gravitates toward that and it creates this exhausting sense of, of just endless consumption. There's, there's every day. There's a, there's a new thing to get involved in. There's a new controversy to know. There's a new trend that I have to copy online. Um, so this, this just relent, relentless consumption uh, of meaningless things. It's, it's just it, it doesn't matter. And this meaninglessness weighs on our hearts because it, it tends to push out the room and our attention span for things that really do matter. Um, And so, I think that's another way that the internet shapes us.
0: So, you're you're saying what your book says that it makes it or even can prohibit people from contemplating these big truths, even God himself, when you're so used to these small fragmented bits of information.
1: Absolutely. So, attention is a finite resource. Uh, We don't have infinite attention. No one does. So, when we direct our attention toward things that are unworthy of it, we're taking attention away from things that are, and I think that has an effect on our souls. I think many of us feel um, they f- we feel anxious, we feel worried, we feel just angry, and we don't—we're not even sure why. Uh, you know, there's a mental health crisis right now among especially uh, young adults and teenagers, and I think this is part of why. I think to wake up in the morning and to start each day and live almost hour by hour. With this nonstop onslaught of triviality, uh, is just very corrosive to our heart, and it tends to darken our ability to to sense big truths and to to do big things.
0: There's so much more in your book, Digital Liturgies: Rediscovering Christian Wisdom in an Online Age. I did want to ask uh, at the end of the book, in the um, uh, the conclusion, you talk about practices, people, and promises needed to to navigate uh, the digital uh, world wisely, and you've you've touched on a couple of them right there. We could perhaps touch on a a few other things maybe to kind of orient our thinking uh, that way. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. So practices. So I think taking breaks, uh, you know, we, the Lord gave us a Sabbath for a reason because he knows we're human beings and we're, we need rest. Uh, And so I think one way in which we can practice this principle of Sabbath is to say, Hey, for, for these hours of the day or for this entire weekend, or maybe even a week, I'm going to unplug. I'm going to devote my attention to things that are right in front of me. And I'm going to remember who I am, who the Lord made me instead of directing my attention kind of into cyberspace so that's that's one uh that's one practice in terms of people I, I would just really encourage everyone listening to this uh, if you're not part of a local church if you're a Christian and you're not part of, of a congregation that meets uh, please change that G- uh, go be a part of a congregation get to know real people don't just don't just try to cultivate followers cultivate friends uh, it's not the same thing yep uh, and and in that, I think you'll experience an, a tremendous amount of refreshment and healing, and kind of this coming back to reality. Uh, and then the promise, right? We we all need to be reminded that ultimately, when we fall into one of these digital liturgies, it's because we're looking for something for the internet to fill. We have a gap somewhere in us. Either we're lonely, either we're we're concerned about the state of the world. Uh, or or maybe we just don't have enough good work to do. Well, the gospel holds out these promises for us. The Lord has given us an identity. We are forgiven. We are His. We are adopted into His family. Uh, He's given a purpose. Uh, Our purpose is to glorify Him, to make disciples, to be part of what He's doing in the world. And He's given us people to do it with. Uh, And He's promised that He'll always be with us. So if we cling to those things, I think we can find a way
0: forward uh, in this technological age. You've been listening to His People on Pilgrim Radio. Many thanks to our guest, Samuel James, Acquisition's editor for Crossway Books and author of Digital Liturgies, Rediscovering Christian Wisdom in an Online Age. Coming up on tomorrow's program, it's Mike Fabares talking about envy, a big problem you didn't know you had. Society has been fueled by envy
1: that creates a lot of the rioting, a lot of the protests, a lot of the, you know, marches on Wall Street and all that. We just have to realize we would not have the problems that we have if envy, if Satan weren't there just cheering on the envy of, in people's
0: hearts. That's tomorrow at this same time, right here on His People. Thanks for listening.